Well, hey, good morning. morning. I'm hoping and praying that the technology will not distract us this morning from uh, what I think is an exciting uh, sermon, so you can make that judgment yourself. It's good to see you here. We are launching a new uh, sermon series today. And, uh, and so if you are new to Solid Rock and aren't quite sure what we mean by that, let me just share with you what we mean by that. Uh, in 2012, we started these longer series throughout the year. We started um, with the Marks, or excuse me, the Forsaken Journey. We spent from Christmas, the birth of Christ, through Easter, the death and resurrection of Christ, looking at the narrative life of Jesus. And then the rest of 2012, we were in the Red Letter series looking specifically at the teachings and the sayings. Is it still doing it? Tell you what, let's just do this. That, that work? Is it hooked up to the computer? Cool. This will be so much better, I promise, for you, not for me. I'll only have one hand to point at you with, but that's okay. Just kidding. And so what we did in 2012 is we spent the whole year really in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we followed that up this past year with the Coming Kingdom series where we went from Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament, to see this unfolding narrative story of the coming kingdom. And we even looked at the New Testament as this story continued. What we're going to do this year is look specifically at the letters in the New Testament that were written to the church. Okay, and these are primarily letters written by Paul, the apostle. The other apostles also contributed to the letters to the church. It's a really unique time for us as a church to understand that this is not only God's word, but these were letters written to the church, which we are, right? And so we've got an opportunity to place ourselves under the microscope of Scripture to allow the Scripture to speak into what we do and what we believe and how we uh, operate as a church and also as individuals this year in, in order to grow, right? And so that's what we're going to do this year in Letters to the Church. I'm excited that you've joined us for the uh, series. We'll spend two weeks today and next Sunday really just ramping up for this series. We'll begin Ephesians two weeks from today. And so what we're going to do today and next Sunday is just lay a basic foundation for what is a church. Okay, so if we're going to be reading these letters to a church, we need to start off with just a basic understanding of what we mean when we say church. Okay, And so the whole year really will be defining what church is and what it's supposed to be doing. But what we're going to do today and next week is we're going to say that if, the, if, if a group of people or a person is anything less than this, it's not a church, okay? So we're going to, we're going to really look at just the boiled down basics of what it means to be a Christian church, who we are and what we do today and the next Sunday, and then we'll start in Ephesians allowing God to speak through the Apostle Paul's writings to us as a church. And so this series will be hopefully enlightening, uh, hopefully encouraging, Expect it to be challenging on a corporate and on an individual level, right? As we place ourselves underneath the microscope and say, Paul, write a letter to us. And we open up the scriptures together. Now, what we're also going to do, and I'll actually talk more about this towards the end of the sermon, is we are, uh, our life groups will be walking uh, through discussions that are connected to the sermons. And also on Sunday mornings, we'll be doing the Sunday morning Bible study, which will actually be studying the scripture that I'll be preaching a week ahead of time. So you'll do a Bible study on the text. Uh, you'll be provided with some, uh, some really neat tools on how to study God's word. And then that week you can study God's word. And then we'll come back together the following Sunday and I'll preach it. And then we'll discuss it in life groups. Now, this is a, this is a ministry philosophy of Solid Rock Church that um, we are better served rather than, okay, think about when I grew up in a church, um, I would come in on Sunday and hear a sermon. And I would come back Sunday night and hear another sermon. I would come to Wednesday night youth group or prayer meeting and I would hear another sermon and then I would do my daily devotionals. If you add all that up, I mean, I was hearing 
150, 250 sermons or messages a year. Well, I don't have the bandwidth to download all that information and retain it. And so uh, what we're doing is saying God's word is so important that we're going to slow down. And instead of doing 200 sermons or 200 messages or Bible studies a year, we're going to do 52. Essentially look at 52 different passages of scripture, which is a lot, by the way. We'll move through almost the whole New Testament this year um, and really sit in and, and soak, marinate in God's word as he speaks to us and speaks into us and, and, and encourages and challenges us. So um, that's where we're headed this year. I hope you're excited and you've got your, uh, your still-toe boots on as we open God's word. Today we're going to be in Matthew 16. So I invite you to turn there and I'll give you a little bit of background and then we'll get started in the text. So what we want to do is we want to ask Jesus really when we start talking about the church, we, we need to understand what it is that you mean when you call us the church. And who better to ask, right? I mean, we could go to the, to the writings of Paul. We could go to the writings of Peter. We could go to the writings of John. We could go to other writings. But who better to go to than Jesus and say, Jesus, tell us what the church is. Okay? Well, on the most basic level, what is the church? In Matthew 16, uh, we're going to find some foundational text uh, into who we are. It's popping out there, isn't it? This technology is great. I can just get a megaphone. Uh, and, and so we're going to look at not only who we are, but what we believe and what defines us then as the church of Jesus. So in this series, we're going to do some things. I'm going to throw this out there in advance, okay, so you understand the heart behind what we're doing. We're going to be talking about theological differences within the church today. We're going to be talking about denominational differences within the church today. And all of this is so that we can have a better understanding of who Jesus wants us to be. Okay, so really for our solid rockers, hear me on this. This is not a series for us to tell the rest of the world how we're doing it right. Okay, this is not a time for us to say, see, you're supposed to do church like this, this is how we do it. We'll be talking about how we do church here, but not in an effort to say that we're doing it right and everybody else is doing it wrong, but to simply ask the question, are we pleasing Jesus with the way we do church here? Okay, and so uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about in, in this text today is just a few divisions in the Christian church today that exist, uh, denominationally and theologically, and I hope that we can see the differences on why different people land in different places. So starting in verse, uh, we're going to start in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. So here's what's happened leading up to this conversation between Jesus and the disciples. Um, first of all, they... They fed 5,000. Jesus walked on water, fed 4,000. Okay, so you might say a lot's just happened. And now he's being confronted by the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 16. And the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, as they do so often, and they're asking him for a sign. We want to see a sign. Great teacher, show us a sign just to prove to us that you are who you say you are. And, uh, and Jesus, I mean, drops it on them. He says, here's the only sign that you're going to get. It's the sign of Jonah. And then they get in a boat and they leave. Now, that was profound to these Pharisees who were top-notch theologians, religious leaders. If we remember the story of Jonah, what was the sign of Jonah? Jonah was sent to a rebellious, wicked people to warn them. And so Jesus says, here's your sign. How about the sign of Jonah? And then he gets in a boat with his disciples and leaves. After they land and they get off the boat, uh, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. He said, all right, guys, you saw what just happened, right? I need to issue a warning here. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. 
And it's so funny if you read it. It's one of the most hilarious texts, I think, in conversations between Jesus and his disciples. But they don't understand what he's talking about. They get caught up in the leaven part of the conversation and completely miss what he's saying. They think he's talking about bread. And they start looking at one and they're like, did, did somebody forget to bring the food? What's he talking about? I don't know. And he confronts them. He's like, guys, bread, really? I just fed 5,000, walked on water, fed 4,000. You think I'm talking about bread? And he warns them. Beware of the leaven, the teachings of these Pharisees. And in verse 13, he shifts the conversation to something incredibly profound and foundational to who we are as a church. Now, some of these verses, I hope, are familiar to you. We're going to walk through them all. Starting in verse 13, we read these words. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, just north of Galilee, he asked his disciples this question. Now, if you're a person who underlines or writes in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline this question and then underline it again when it comes back up because this is the primary thrust or feeling of this text. This is the main thing Jesus is after here. So he asked this question, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Now, it's interesting, if you read the response the disciples give in verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or just one of the prophets. Now, here's what's happening uh, on the frontier at this point in time. Jesus has made such a ripple in the community around, and he has become so, uh, so publicly known that people are having to do something with him. Okay? And so some people have heard of John the Baptist, but maybe never seen him, and so they're talking amongst ourselves. Did you hear what he said? Yeah, did you see what he did? You know what? I heard in the last time town, he healed a lame person, and they, like, dug a hole in the roof and lowered it. And they're telling stories about Jesus, and they're trying to figure out what to do with him. And so one of the things that they were doing with him, they're saying, well, maybe that's John the Baptist. Like, I've never seen John the Baptist. He kind of, maybe that's who it is. And then others are saying, no, 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 no. Remember what Malachi said? Elijah was going to come back. I mean, if we listen to the authority of his teaching, we watch the miracles that are taking place, this has got to be Elijah. And some are saying, well, you know, there's no way it's Elijah. I mean, have you heard him speak? Have you heard the way he confronts the Pharisees? I mean, he's talking like Jeremiah. Maybe this is Jeremiah coming back to warn us. And then others are saying, I got no idea who he is, but he's got to be a prophet. So they're at a place in the unfolding of the narrative of Jesus' life where people are having to do something with Jesus. You can't just ignore him anymore, okay? He's not just a street preacher on the corner who's here today and gone tomorrow He won't go away. And what he's doing and what he's saying has such a profound impact on the people that they're having to do something with him. Who is he? And so that's the question that's posed to the disciples. Hey, guys, come here. What are the people saying about me? What are you hearing? Who are they saying that I am? Jesus, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Those people evidently never saw John the Baptist because he doesn't look like you. Other people are saying Elijah. They're remembering the prophecies from the Old Testament that Elijah would return and Some are saying that's who you are. Somebody else chimes in and says, no, no, you know what I heard? I heard somebody talking the other day down in the village. They thought you were Jeremiah. And then a few more chimed in and said, I don't know, but here's the thing. People don't know what to do with you. So they're just throwing you in with the prophets. And now at this point in time, pay attention. The conversation is between Jesus and the 12, okay? And so when he says to them, he asks the question, who do you say that I am? It's plural, So he's still speaking to the 12. That's incredibly important to help us understand where he's going in this particular passage, okay? 
So he then responds with this, this ice-breaking, piercing, heart-piercing question as the disciples are all chiming in. He says, whoa, 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 I have another question. Who do you say that I am? And this is where the conversation begins to focus and hone in on Jesus and Peter. All right. Verse 15, he says to them, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, everything we're going to read that follows in your New Testament, I would say, but especially in this passage, hinges on that statement. Okay? I'll show you. So if you're underlining again, you might want to circle this one, put out an asterisk next to it, set it apart. Okay, the question was, who do you say that I am? And now Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now the phrase itself is packed full of meaning. To begin with, if, if Peter had just said, you're the son of God, we as, a, as, as Christians, we would get that. We'd go, yeah, Jesus is the son of God. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. However, for these folks, the son of God had multiple meanings, that phrase. For example, in the Old Testament, Israel itself, was, as a nation, when God would refer to them like a, like a loving child, he would refer to them as his son. Many times he calls them like a son, like a child. But also, even more relevant maybe to what we're looking at here, the son of God was a phrase used to describe kings. For the kings who sat on the throne over Israel, they would call that king a son of God with a lowercase s, uh, reflecting that they believed God had set that leader on the throne, whether it was David or Paul or Solomon, whoever the king was, one of the phrases that would describe that king would be the son of God, as one who was sent like a son from God. However, he says something different. He starts with what? You are the Christ. Now, as soon as he says the Christ, it changes everything. Because what he's saying is, Jesus, you're actually not just a king of Israel. You are the king. You're the anointed one, the Messiah, the coming king of Israel, the Christ, the one who was promised. That's who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, the real son of the living God. Now, we know this is incredibly important to understanding this passage. One, it's what Jesus is asking But two, look at what he says to Peter right after that. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, don't focus too much on the name. He's going to shift and call Peter something else in a minute to kind of set set a different message or a a furthering of the message. But at this point, what that means is that he's Simon, the son of Jonah. Okay. But the point is this. Peter, you are blessed right now. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. God revealed that to you. And so really, what's going to flow after this is just an explanation of what Jesus just said. So he responds, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is a big deal. You didn't just come up with that on your own. You weren't just out fishing one day and were thinking about the kingdom of heaven and went, you know what? Jesus kind of reminds me of the Christ. That's who he is. Like, what you just said, Peter, you couldn't come up with. God had to give that to you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not 
reveal this to you. Then we get this, verse 18, this infamous point of division in the Christian church. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, which is the Greek word Petros, which means rock. That was his nickname. I would love to have that as a nickname, by the way. Just in case you want to start a new nickname for me around the church. I don't look like a rock, but how cool is that? The rock. Hey, rock, come here. So, rock-headed. Actually, we'll get there in a minute. So, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, the rock. You are Peter. And off, or excuse me, and on this rock, I will build my what? Church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, churches, denominations, eras in Christian history have struggled over how to interpret what Jesus just said here. And major divisions have come out of this passage. Um, The Roman Catholic Church has, has taken this particular passage and placed a lot of emphasis on Peter, which I don't think that they're far off, just to be honest with you. I think it helps us to understand what's going on here more than we tend to admit to the point, though, that the only legitimate pope is a successor of Peter, right? So they take this so literal that they feel like the point is Peter and nothing else. So upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. So the only legitimate standing popes are the popes in succession of Peter. And now, but then but there, there's this other shift in evangelicalism. Protestants will say, no, 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 that's not what he's talking about. The emphasis isn't on Peter, it's on something else. See, look, he uses two different Greek words, Petros and Petra. And there will be this, you've probably heard this explanation. I used to preach this, okay? I don't think it's fully the explanation here, but I used to preach this. So he used one word for Peter and another word for the rock for the church. So he's got to be talking about two different things. Problem is, in Greek literature, those words get changed out interchangeably all the time. It is a play on words. But there's something, there's something incredibly important going on in this passage that we skip over when we jump on those two arguments. Look at what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed, what's the next word? This to you. It's such an important word here. Now if you look at the original language, he's not talking to you, you all. He's talking to Peter himself. And he's saying, Peter, you're pretty blessed for what you just said. You didn't figure that out on your own. You're Peter, but upon this rock I'm going to build my church. And so we step back and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That doesn't make sense for Jesus to say to Peter, upon this, if he's talking about Peter, right? He would say, upon you, I'm going to build my church. However, what he is talking about is incredibly closely connected to what just happened. What's the this? It's this beautiful proclamation that Peter just made that he didn't come up with on his own. You, you see the theme of what's happening here. And Jesus said, why? You didn't come up with that answer on your own. And upon this, upon this proclamation, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Now, continue reading. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So here's, what we, here's where we are. This is the first time the word church shows up in your Bible, okay? Ecclesia, probably may have heard that word before. 
okay? And it's a word that kind of gets pulled out of a secular context and applied to the people of God. Right here, Jesus does that. He calls us the church. Before this, uh, the word literally meant uh, an assembly of people who have come out of their homes and gathered publicly. That's, that's how the word got used, okay? Could be a formal setting, like um, need all the heads of households to meet on Saturday evening at 6 o'clock in the public square. So all the head of households would come out and they would meet and they would assemble, formal assembly. It could also be an informal assembly, like there's an earthquake and everybody comes out of their homes and they kind of clutter up in the streets and they've kind of assembled there together. So that's what the word means, okay? There's nothing really religious about it. But what Jesus is saying is this. Upon that proclamation that Peter just made, I will build my public assembly. You see the connection there? And so, so I go, okay, Roman Catholic Church placing so much emphasis on Peter. Man, I'm, I'm good with that as long as we're looking at what Peter said. And here's the problem if you get so focused on Peter. If you follow down into verse 23, Jesus actually calls him the stumbling block. Actually, he calls him Satan, right? And then he says, right, and then he calls him a hindrance or a stumbling block. So we know that Peter really isn't the point. It's what Peter said that is the point here. Upon that proclamation, I will build my church. Now, along the way in this series, we'll be talking about different, we'll do that a lot, okay? Everybody's fair game. I will probably pick on the Baptist church more than anybody, primarily because that's my roots, and there's a lot of us here. But let's just be honest, there's plenty there to pick on, okay? And so we're, everybody's fair game. We're just going to, it's for learning. It's to understand the differences and why people land where they, where they land, okay? But here's the point that I want to make right now. If a group of people meet publicly and believe anything less than that statement right there, they are not a church. Okay? Let say it again. I don't care what the name is. You can have Jesus in the title of your church. I don't care what denomination affiliation you have. If the group of people meeting believe anything less of Jesus than what Peter just said, it's not a church. Now, it might be a fellowship with a lowercase f. It might be a community. It might be a public gathering. But it's not a Christian church. Now, let me bring this in and make it a little bit more personal for just a moment. If you as an individual believe anything less about Jesus, you're not a Christian. That was the point of Jesus' question. I don't care what they're saying. What do you say? I know they're trying to figure me out and identify me and label me. Who do you say that I am? And now we can get into lots of theological conversations and different ways to do church and ways to worship and music and all over the place, okay? We come from a lot of different backgrounds here at Solid Rock. But we can't stand on anything less than that theological statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And those who believe that and assemble themselves publicly are his church, the kingdom of God on earth. Look at what he says next. Upon this rock, which rock? He's talking to Peter, so he's not talking about Peter. He's talking about what Peter just said. Upon this proclamation, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think that um, the modern church today has way too shallow of an understanding of our identity here on the face of the earth. I think 
at best, we think we're here to inspire the world to be happy. If you look at the church message as a whole. And we, we don't realize the depth that you and I as believers in Jesus are the kingdom of God here on earth. Like the, the, what the kingdom will do eternally, we're experiencing right now. The church itself is here on the earth to push back against the darkness. To be a lighthouse and a beacon of hope in every community that the church exists in. Like, we're not just here to trade cookies, right? And pat each other on the tail and high five and shake and hug and love one. We're here to be the kingdom of God on earth. You see how profound that statement was? Peter, I'm going to build my church on that statement. And the gates of hell will not prevail against those who assemble and believe what you just said. You didn't come up with that on your own. I did. Now, he continues on. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19. Now, we get, we're up against another uh, point of division in the current modern church. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, so let me just give you a few camps. Um, there's uh, among Protestants, okay, they're um, on one end of a theological spectrum. Conservative folks will say that what Jesus was talking about was primarily talking about when his kingdom finally comes. Looking forward to Jesus' reign here on earth, a sense of permanence when that happens, okay? That what Jesus is talking about really doesn't apply to anybody right now. There are folks who, who kind of interpret it that way and teach it, okay? But on the other end of that theological spectrum, uh, in more of the charismatic realm, and when I use the word charismatic, um, let me just be clear. I'm not talking about believing in the gifts of prophecy and tongues and, you know, that sort of thing. I'm talking about the core of theology of hyper-charismatics is that Jesus is tossing a set of keys to heaven and the earth to the disciples saying, whatever you say goes, Okay, this is where the name it, claim it crew comes from. So you have two ends. One group would say, that doesn't apply to the church. That's for, that's for after the church, after Jesus comes back. And then there are others who are saying, no, no, no. Anything that we can, we can hang the labels good or evil on, we have authority over. We just say it. Okay, and so some of you come from those experiences. You know what I'm talking about. Well, I think what Jesus is saying here, first of all, is so much more foundational than, uh, than that idea that, okay, I'm going to, you know, say this and it's just going to happen. So if you continue studying this theme of keys and unlocking through the rest of your New Testament, by the way, it shows up a lot. And when it shows up, it shows up in incredibly profound places. Okay? So if we don't just stop here, we keep reading throughout your New Testament. We're looking, what gets unlocked? Who are the key- what are the keys? Who are the keys? How does this work? In Revelation chapter 5, Something beautiful unfolds. And now this is um, the first, uh, so, so um, you have 12 disciples, 11 of which die as martyrs. The 12th is John. They try to kill him in a pot of boiling oil. It's a bad way to go. And, uh, and he lives. But, so they exile him to Patmos where he receives this revelation. We call it the revelation from Jesus himself. And he writes it all down. It's so fun to watch him interact with the revelation. He's not just writing down what he hears. He's seeing things, and he's stopping for a minute. He's, at one point, he starts crying and freaking out, and an angel has to say, no, 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 calm down, John. It's okay. 
Well, in Revelation 5, here's what happens. It's the first appearance of a scroll. And there's a problem that it, we're going to see here. The problem is this. Nobody can be found. Not an elder, not a saint, not an angel that has the ability to unlock the scroll. And so there's a dilemma in heaven. Re- read the first few verses with me of Revelation 5. Verse 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So this is a very important thing in heaven, this scroll, and it's really locked up tight. It's got seven seals on it. Okay? So verse 2, Revelation 5, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice. Mighty angel... Okay, that should get your attention. In what kind of voice? Loud voice. We got, we got a dilemma here. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who can unlock this thing? This mighty angel is proclaiming. John, here's this mighty angel saying, who can do this? So John, look at what he does. Verse 3, and no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Look at what John does. Verse 4. And I began to weep loudly. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. You have this in your mind? Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, John, weep no more. Behold, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can what? Open the scroll and its seven seals. One figure in this story was worthy to unlock, to open the scroll. And it was the line of the tribe of Judah, the descendant of David. And we'll see in verse 6, the lamb who was slain, which is who? Jesus. The only one worthy to unlock the scroll was Jesus. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Now, what we're going to see is we go back to Matthew 16, what Jesus was more than likely talking about was this. Um, and we'll see it again in Hebrews 10 in just a second. If you want to flip to Hebrews 10, you can turn there. We'll look at a few verses. Jesus was saying to Peter and to the disciples there, I'm going to leave you with a set of keys that is going to unlock something. But then when we read the rest of the New Testament, it's Jesus who is actually the one unlocking things, okay? Hebrews 10 is another example of where we see a teaching on this. So Hebrews 10, here's the thrust of what's going on. The author of Hebrews is talking about how in the Old Testament, they used to bring animals into the worship and kill them for the sins of the people and to give them a moment in God's presence, right? They would kill the animal, the priest would go in and be in God's presence for a second and then come back out. And what the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 10 is this, the sacrifices didn't work. They just kept offering them year after year after year. One, sins were never taken away. And two, God's presence wasn't unlocked. But then something happens at the death and resurrection of Jesus to the temple curtain. You know what that is? The curtain is, the veil is actually torn. Opening up, unlocking God's presence to those who believe. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 is talking about this in verse 1. He writes this, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, okay? So basically he's saying since 
What we did in the Old Testament in worship, that was really just a shadow. It wasn't the real deal. Those sacrifices, the blood we saw from the animals was just a shadow of something else that was coming. Because of that, they can never, or it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually being offered every year, make perfect those who do what? Draw near. It doesn't work. You can keep killing animals every hour of every day for the rest of your life. God's presence isn't going to be unlocked for you through that. Verse 2, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 11, and these priests, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, look at what he did. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his uh, footstool for his feet. 19. Therefore, this is very important, therefore. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the what? The holy places. God's presence has been unlocked for those who believe. Through the sacrifices of animals, through our morality, right? Through our conduct, through our church clothes, through playing the right music, through our style, through, no. God's presence has been unlocked for us by one singular sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. Verse, end of verse 19, we can now enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 20. By the new and living way, he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us do what? Draw near. There it is again. Draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I believe what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm going to give you the keys is this, it's, 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 it was revving up for what he was going to do in Matthew 28 when he said to them, now you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. You go take to the world what I'm giving to you, and eternity will be unlocked for the nations. God's presence will be unlocked for the nations. People's sin, will, the nation's sins will be forgiven through this one sacrifice. Because remember what the point of this is? The proclamation Peter made. Not Peter and the disciples. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I believe he's saying I'll give you the gospel. And you're going to take this gospel to the ends of nations. And you're going to unlock a relationship. You're going to unlock eternity. You're going to unlock the forgiveness of sins by proclaiming to the nations what you believe about me. And whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loosen will be loose. I think Jesus very clearly is speaking of the permanence of what will be unlocked for us. That when somebody becomes a believer and God's presence is unlocked, and right, that it's a permanent thing. It reminds me of Romans 8. And if you're familiar with that, that passage where Paul asked the question, Who can separate us from this relationship, this love relationship we have? Who can do that? Romans 8, 
35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, nope. In all these things, we are more than what? More than what? Conquers through what? Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. When it's bound by Jesus, it's bound. And whatever he loosens will be loosed. See, I think that what Peter is getting from Jesus and what Jesus is saying to the disciples is so much bigger than just a small little theological category. I think he's laying a foundation for the church here. And we're going to go to Acts 2 in just a second to end. Feel free to turn there. And we're going to see this play out in Acts 2. So uh, Jesus pulls the disciples aside, has this conversation. Right after that, he tells them, hey, guys, I'm getting ready to go die. And Peter jumps up, right? Peter kind of rebukes him and says, no, you're not going to die. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Quit being a stumbling block. Okay, this is Matthew 16. Matthew 28, after his resurrection, he pulls the guys in again and says, all right, guys, it's time to go. Go take this message to the nations. So the book of Acts is the story of that mission unfolding. Okay, so in Acts 2, we get the first recorded sermon of the church, and guess who's preaching? Peter. And so we get to hear what Peter thought about what Jesus said. Now, it's interesting how it starts. I love this. It's beautiful because the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit just falls on the place and kind of rattles the building, okay? Um, not like the, like the Azel earthquakes where you kind of, did I feel that? Did I not? Like the whole place was shaken. Fixture, you know, they didn't have fixtures. But if they had, the fixtures would have been swinging, the whole place. And so here's the thing. Then all of a sudden, the, the believers, those who believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, began to speak in different tongues to the point where those walking by were, A, hearing something they understood, but, B, were saying, these guys are drunk. It's in the Bible, okay? That was the only explanation they could come up with. These guys, man, it's only 10 a.m. They're already hitting the wine. That's some good. They're drunk. So Peter steps up. First of all, he says, we're not drunk. Let me tell you what's happening. The Holy Spirit is descending on God's church just like he promised, right? Jesus said, I'm, gonna, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to send my helper. That's, he's here. <laughs> That's the helper, right? What God did in, back in, uh, in Genesis like 10 and 11 with the Tower of Babel where he confused the languages, he's putting back together. He's unifying his kingdom right now in front of us. So Peter explains that, and, get, and then guess what he does right after that? He preaches Jesus. He proceeds to teach them how Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy, the one promised as the son of David, the one who the prophets were talking about, the Messiah, the King, the Christ. Now this is the rest of 40, uh, chapter 2, all the way up through 40. The people hear this message. What did they hear? They heard this proclamation of who Jesus was, and they were cut to the, to the heart. And they're like, whoa, what do we do? Peter said, well, I, I don't know. I just kind of picture him looking at the other disciples. What do we do next? I don't know. What did Jesus say? Well, he said, baptize them and teach them to obey all that he commanded. Okay. Repent and be baptized. Okay. And so we're going to pick this up in 41. So all 3,000 of them then were like Church of Christ style. 
baptized right there on the spot. Look at Acts 2, uh, starting in verse 41. And what I mean by Church of Christ style, I'm going to be helpful, hopefully. Um, there's a teaching in Orthodox Church of Christ theology that you're not actually saved until after you're baptized. So when you make the proclamation, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, like there's a bathtub right there. We need to go ahead and seal the deal, okay? We'll get into this as we move through the series on where we land and what we teach. Um, but ultimately what we teach is that baptism is the beautiful public proclamation of what we believe on the inside as believers in Jesus. That the water doesn't save us, but it proclaims what has. Okay? And so here's what follows. In verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What happened? Jesus stood, uh, Peter stood up. I did it again. When I say Jeter, I'm either talking about Jesus or Peter. You just pick one. <laughs> Peter steps up, and he proclaims what? Himself? He proclaims Jesus, and eternity, the presence of God, was unlocked for 3,000 people that day, and they were baptized. Now, in, in two weeks, we're going to be baptizing um, here at Solid Rock. We've got uh, somebody who's uh, been wrestling with this for a while, and they want to be baptized, and, and I know others of you have, so I want to talk about that for just a minute. Um, when I sit and talk with somebody about baptism, and somebody's wrestling with whether or not it's time or not, okay, um, there are three questions that I boil everything down to. Let me, let me share them with you. The first one is this. Somebody's like, I'm not sure if it's time. I'm not sure if I'm ready. Some of you have been there, and some of you are there right now, okay? I'm not sure if I'm ready. So this is what I do. I boil it down to this. One, let me, let me ask you. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? We need to start there. Because if you don't believe that, you are not ready to be baptized. So we start there. If the answer is yes, I follow up with a second question. The second question is this. Do you believe, do you believe that through Jesus' death and resurrection, you can have forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God unlocked? If the answer is yes, I go to the third question, which is this. Do you, not your grandma, not your spouse, not your children, do you do you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? And if the answer is yes, I respond 100% wholeheartedly, you're ready to be baptized. You see how, see how it worked? Jesus was proclaimed, the people believed, and they were baptized. And so here, like, there's so much beautiful symbolism in baptism. When we do it in a couple weeks, I'll explain it. You know, from the death, being buried with him in death and resurrected to a new life, being washed clean of all your sins, but the core of what baptism is, is this. It's a public proclamation that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what it is before it is anything else. And so if you believe anything less than that, you're not ready to be baptized. However, if you do believe that, you're ready today. Like right here style. Hold the phone. I'll go get the baptistry out. We'll fill it up with water and do it. The pond is too cold. We could do the pond, but it's cold today. Like, that's, that's how big this was and how serious this was for the church. They were proclaiming, proclaiming Jesus publicly, and those who responded were baptized. Now, if you continue reading uh, into the, and we'll, we're going to stop in Acts 2.42 and pick it back up next week. So let's read 42 together, Acts 2.42. So 3,000 believers baptized right then, boom. 42. 
And they, who are the they? Say it again. Okay. The believers and Peter, the apostles, the 120 believers who were there before the 3,000, all 3,120 of them, plus or minus, they were and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And we won't go too deep into the rest of this. Let me just stop right here. So, really, we believe that this is a, a, uh, a monumental description of what the church is to be here at Solid Rock. It's one of the reasons why we do life groups. We're going to read how they really committed themselves to the apostles' teachings in homes, okay? We're not against Sunday school model, all the other models that you can participate in in different churches, but this is why we do it this way here, okay? We don't run traditional Sunday school on Sunday mornings because we do what we feel like is an in-depth, elaborate teaching in, the, in actually the sermon, okay? And so what we're doing is um, the Bible study that's starting up, this is just not an accessory, something to do if you, have, you don't have anything, you know, time to kill. Like, this is an important part of our growth as a church. If you want to come be a part of it, um, Cam and uh, Cameron Glass, who leads our life groups, and Jimmy Gillum and a few others are actually getting together, putting together the Bible study, writing the curriculum. You'll be coming in and sitting down, like I said, hearing the text a, he- a week ahead of time, studying it with a, with a group of, of Christians. You'll be given maybe some daily work to do, not a whole lot, but some homework to do in between. Then you'll come back the next week, and we'll sit under that text together collectively. Okay? Because why? Because we want to be devoted to the apostles' teachings. We don't want to just skim and go, ooh, wasn't that inspirational? Ooh, wasn't that challenging? We want to soak in it. We want to, we want to deeply absorb 52 messages a year as opposed to shallowly right, absorbing 150 to 200. So we want to invite you into that journey. Like, I am so excited about where we will go together if we will devote ourselves like these first believers New Christians, this will be really good for you. Every week, we're going to be introducing new Bible study tools that will apply it to any text of Scripture, any book in the Bible. Okay, It's not just about Ephesians. That'll be where we're at, but we're going to teach you Bible study tools. For those who are like embedded, part of the church here, like we want to grow together. I get jealous when you grow and I hear about what God's doing in your life and teaching you about things that I'm not like also growing in. I kind of get envious of that in a, in a godly way. I'm like, ah, oh, I want to be doing that devotion with you. I want to be studying that with you. And so this is an opportunity for us then to grow together, to be committed to. And so life groups will then be um, walking this out in application. Not a whole lot of in-depth Bible study, but a lot of, okay, what does this mean for us then? And we're going to be going through another book that's connected to it. Um, and the title of the book is Who, do you, uh, Who Are You, I think is what it's called. Looking at our personal identity in Christ through the book of Ephesians. Okay, so I wanted to lay all that out for you so you could understand. This is where we're going this year. But here's my thing. Like, I appreciate what Jason Lewis said about um, uh, New Year's resolutions, um, mainly because I'm horrible at them. Some of you are really good. I'm horrible at them. And I have enough failure in life. I don't need to create new failure, okay? But seriously, um, you know, what if we as a church, okay, first of all, if you're doing the resolutions, I'm cheering you on, okay? Go for it. I'll be there maybe at the marathon. Like, that's what you're headed for. Go for it. However, if you fall short, we're still friends, what if we, instead, or in addition to, every year, instead of just coming up with all these new behavior modifications that we're going to do every year that we don't follow up, follow through on, what if we revisited the core of what we believe and who we are instead? What if we, year after year as a church, 
come back to the core of what we believe, this bedrock proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what if we built our year upon that statement instead? I think there's something incredibly encouraging about revisiting the things that we already know are true to remind one another of what is true, to re-sing to one another the beautiful gospel message, to re-proclaim to one another who Jesus is. Now, we can get into all kinds of theological debates, and those are fun and sometimes divisive and not fun, but the point is this. If we are a church, we have to be a people who publicly proclaim and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Anything less than that is not a church. I want to pray for us now, and as we get ready to close, um, we'll come back next week, and we'll look at what the church is supposed to be doing. And we'll do the same thing. Anything less than this isn't the church. And so we've been given a mission. We're going to look at that together. But before we go any further, let's just stop for a minute, and I'm going to maybe just ask you just to get quiet for a second. And, um, and I'm going to pray in a minute, and... Uh, more important than you listening to what I'm praying, I'm gonna encourage you just to take some spiritual inventory right now. You know, maybe just drop yourself into that conversation with the disciples and hear Jesus asking you, now who is it you say again that I am? And, and, and Christians, listen, I want you especially to do this. Hear yourself, hear Jesus asking you. Now, now I've been looking at your daily life. Now who is it? Now who is it again that you say that I am? And let's take some spiritual inventory. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus is here today and he wants to unlock a relationship with you. And you don't need to come get the keys from me, okay? You can come talk with me. You can come talk with our prayer partners. But Jesus wants you ultimately to come to him. So if you come and get me, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take you by the hand and walk you to him. Because he's the one who can actually unlock things for you. And maybe today would be the day that you would trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation and have the beautiful forgiveness that gets unlocked in that moment. This beautiful permanent access into God's presence, this daily relationship that he longs to walk with you. Have it all unlocked right now, right here. Let's pray together.